The second reading is taken from Luke chapter 22, verses 1 to 6. Now the feast of the unleavened bread drew near, which is called the Passover. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him to death, for they feared the people. Then Satan entered into Judas, called Iscariot, who was one of the number of the twelve. He went away and conferred with the chief priests and the officers how he might betray him to them. And they were glad, and they agreed to give him money. So he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of a crowd. Good morning. Let me pray for us as we begin. Heavenly Father, thank you that you speak to us through your word. Lord, thank you that it teaches us and that it trains us. Lord, we ask this morning that where we are complacent, you would warn us. And where we are hopeless, you would fill us with hope. Lord, that you would make us wise for salvation and useful servants of Jesus. In his name we ask. Amen. I wonder if somebody asked you, who is the person that you know who is least likely to stop following Jesus? Who would you say? Uh, maybe your mind immediately goes to a church leader, maybe somebody like Ken or Ben, or maybe another leader who has been influential in your Christian walk. Or maybe you think of somebody who has been a Christian for a very long time, someone who knows all about the Bible, someone who can tell you all about Jesus. Well, this morning, as we re-enter Luke's Gospel, and as we look at the final couple of chapters and the last 48 hours of Jesus' life before he faces the cross, we're faced with a stark and sober warning. Firstly, that titles are no guarantee of truthfulness, and that closeness to Jesus is not necessarily a guarantee of love for Jesus. But despite that, this passage is also filled with hope. Hope that God can work even in the darkness. That darkness doesn't mean defeat, but in fact that it is something that God can use to bring glory and victory. So if you're not there already, please open up to Luke chapter 22 and verse 1. I've got three points this morning and the first one is this. Titles don't equal truth. Titles are no guarantee of truthfulness. Read with me uh, from Luke chapter 22 and verse 1. Now the feast of unleavened bread drew near, which is called the Passover, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him to death, for they feared the people. Jesus has entered Jerusalem, and word about his teaching, which the religious people have taken a keen interest in right from the beginning, has now reached the very top. The chief priests and the scribes, the highest court in the land, what will they make of Jesus? Will they identify him as the long-awaited Messiah? Will they take a keen interest in his reforming teaching? Well, not only do they not recognise Jesus as the Messiah, instead of seeing him as a saviour, they see him as a threat. And now they are seeking a way to put him to death. Uh, perhaps we're used to the chief priests and the scribes being uh, painted as, as the bad guys. We know, we've read this before, they don't recognise Jesus, but it should be no less shocking for us. 
These were Israel's teachers. These are the ones who knew the scriptures. These are the ones who should have spotted straight away that Jesus was fulfilling them, that he was the one that God had promised. He was not even just a prophet or a wise teacher, but God's own son sent to save them. And yet they don't. They seem as a threat, a threat to their power and to their position. I think we get a, a clue of that at the end of verse two, when it tells us that they're seeking to put Jesus to death, but they want to do it quietly. They want to do it in secret because they fear the people. It's repeated again at the end of verse six, where they're looking for an opportunity to betray Jesus, but to do so in the absence of a crowd in secret. I think this tells us a lot about the chief priests and the scribes' motivation. They're worried about the crowds. They're worried about what people think of them. They're worried that Jesus's popularity threatens their own power and privilege. As I said before, it's tempting when we read this just to kind of gloss over it and to say, yeah, the chief priests and the scribes, they're the bad guys. They're the pantomime villains. We boo and hiss as they come onto the stage and think, how could they? How couldn't they recognise Jesus? How, how shocking it is that they're Israel's leaders and yet they don't recognise its saviour. They're too concerned with their own power and their privilege. But are they so very different to ourselves? It's pretty easy to uh, find church leaders who have been willing to compromise on doctrine and what they believe and what the Bible says for influence or acceptability in the face of crowds. And it's not just uh, the church out there, even uh, church leaders, even in the past 12 months of churches that we might feel close to, leaders who we may have looked up to, leaders who'd call themselves Bible-believing Christians, who have, for the sake of money, or sex or power and position abandoned Jesus entirely or led his church in a way that brings shame to his name no we're not so very different uh, to these leaders are we we're interested in what the crowds think about us we care about perception we care about positions of power so what are we to do about this? Well, the Bible says that we should test our leaders. And we do that in two ways. Firstly, we test what they say against scripture. That's what the Bible tells us to do. It tells us to test what anyone say and say, does it line up with, is it in accord with what the Bible says? And no one's exempted from this. A little bit later in the New Testament, we see uh, Paul calling out Peter and saying, what you're doing, what you're saying isn't in accord with the gospel. You've got it wrong. Take a look again. See what God is saying through his word. I wonder, do you do that? Do you test what you hear from leaders by God's word? Do you listen uh, to a sermon online? Do you do it with your Bible open? If in your midweek group somebody says something and you're not quite sure about it, what do you do? Do you stay quiet? Do you ask a question? Do you say, well, I'm not quite sure where you got that from. Can you show me where in God's word it says that? 
what we should be doing constantly, all the time. Secondly, uh, we're encouraged to test our leaders against the way that they act. Does their behaviour line up with what God's word says is right and proper behaviour for leaders? They exhibit uh, the gifts of the spirit. Do we see patience and self-control? Do we see uh, prideful arrogance? We need to test our leaders and to test ourselves because none of us are infallible. None of us are perfect. The chief priests and the scribes knew their Bible, probably knew it better than most of us, and yet they failed to recognise Jesus. They were too concerned with their power and with their privilege, and they missed him. But it's not just leaders who attempted to compromise, is it? It's us as well. Too often we're concerned about what people think of us, about how our standing might be lowered if we speak truthfully about Jesus. I wonder where that temptation is for you. Have a think and share it with someone. Ask them to pray for you, ask them to help you, keep you accountable. Power is powerful, it's tempting. And those in positions of power can't rely on them to just have truthfulness just because they have that position. We need to test it. Secondly, we're going to see that proximity doesn't equal love. Knowing about Jesus is not the same as loving Jesus. Read with me from verse 3. Then Satan entered into Judas, called Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve. He went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray them to him. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. So he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of a crowd. If we thought it was shocking that the chief priests and the scribes, the religious leaders of the day, would be prepared to betray Jesus, how much more shocking is it that Judas, one of the twelve, one who knew Jesus most intimately, is prepared to betray him too. Judas was as close to Jesus as you could imagine, and yet he betrays him still. Judas had uh, spent the last three years following Jesus around in his public ministry. He'd witnessed his miracles, his authoritative teaching. He'd seen Jesus' compassion for lost people. He'd seen Jesus' perfection, but he didn't love him. Or perhaps it's more accurate to say uh, that Jesus loved money more than Jesus. That's the reason uh, we're given in verse 6 for Jesus' consent. He agrees to hand over Jesus. He agrees to betray the Son of God for money. In John's Gospel, uh, in chapter 12, we're given a little bit more detail. And we're told that Judas was in control of the money bag. He'd been uh, the treasurer, as it were, for the disciples over the past few years but that for a period of time he had been taking that money for himself. That love of money, that desire for it, had been creeping and growing for a while, and it had blinded him to Jesus. You see, just because Judas was close to Jesus, just because he'd had opportunity and access and, and seen all that Jesus had done, 
and didn't mean that his heart had been captured by him. Uh, in 1962, uh, some executives from Decca Records invited a promising new band to audition for them in their offices in London. One of their uh, people had seen them performing in a small club and said, these guys look great, let's invite them down. And uh, due to one of the executives being late, they actually got more time than usual, able to uh, record almost a whole album's worth of songs for them. But at the end of the day, the executives got together and they decided not to sign them, giving them the reason that guitar music was on its way out. Well, if you haven't guessed already, uh, the club that the band was seen in was called The Cavern Club, and the band were a little-known band called The Beatles. They missed it. Even though they had accent, even though they'd heard their music, even though they'd seen them together, they didn't recognise who they were and they didn't take advantage. Just like Judas, they'd had every opportunity, but they hadn't taken it. I wonder if that is something like your experience here this morning. Perhaps you have attended church for a long time. Perhaps you've tuned in week by week uh, to these uh, video recordings of services. Judas would have been here this morning. Judas would have been at the midweek group. He would have been at the prayer meeting. But he wasn't really there. This love in his heart for money had overtaken his love for Jesus. I can remember uh, my dad telling me of uh, a guy that he knew who he worked with for a while who'd started asking uh, about Christianity and about Jesus and they'd been talking for some time about him and his interest was growing until uh, one day uh, he spoke to my dad and said I don't want to talk about Jesus anymore. Dad asked, why? What's happened? Is, is there a question that you've got that I haven't been able to answer? Have I said something that's offended you? And he said, no, it's none of that. But I'm beginning to realise that this just me might, might be true. And I know that if I start following Jesus, there's a whole host of things that I'm going to have to give up. And I'm just not prepared to do that. Jesus wasn't prepared to give up money. And he was willing to exchange 30 pieces of silver for the life of his saviour. Now that didn't happen all at once. It didn't happen just on this day. It had been creeping for a while. It says in verse 3 uh, that Satan entered Judas. And for a lot of us, we might find that problematic. What, what happened? Uh, was Judas possessed? Didn't he have any control over this? Surely this is unfair. But Judas knew Jesus, and Satan only entered Judas because he'd left the door wide open. Verse 6 uh, says that Judas consented to the plan of the chief priests and the scribes to betray Jesus. A little bit later on in the chapter, in verse 48, it's clear that Jesus holds Judas responsible for his actions. And Judas betrays Jesus a bit like the way that people become bankrupt. Slowly and slowly, inch by inch, and then suddenly all at once. Jesus' love for money has been growing for a period of time, and now it tips him over the edge. He's prepared to make this terrible decision to betray Jesus with a, with a kiss. 
So what does this mean for us? Well, as well as us being uh, needing to be careful about our leaders needing to test what they say and test the way that they live against scripture, we also need to watch ourselves. Look with me at what it says in 1 Peter uh, chapter 5. We're told to be watchful, uh, to be sober-minded. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Jesus hadn't resisted the devil, and so Satan enters him here, and he does a terrible We need to be watchful. We need to watch our own hearts. What is the thing? What is the person? What is the job? What is the achievement that threatens to take first place in our hearts above Jesus? The thing that we are most likely to exchange him for. We need to be watchful. We need to watch our hearts. And we need not just to be in proximity to Jesus, but to abide in him, to come to him day by day in prayerful dependence upon him and say, without you, I can't do anything. Stay close to me and help me to stay close to you. So we've seen uh, that we need to be watchful over our leaders and we need to be watchful over our own hearts. So where does this leave us? Where's the hope in this passage? Well, that's the third and final thing I want us to see, that darkness doesn't equal defeat. Darkness doesn't equal defeat. Israel leaders want Jesus dead and his closest friend is willing to betray him. But everything is going to plan. Jesus uh, describes this time a little bit later in the chapter as the hour of darkness. But that's not the only thing that is going on. Look with me again at verse 1 of the chapter. Now the feast of unleavened bread drew near, which is called the Passover. Luke often in his gospel gives us little uh, timing updates. And it's not just to help us have a marker of where the story's got to. These are very deliberate uh, attempts to draw attention to something. It's no coincidence that Jesus has now entered Jerusalem and will face death when it's Passover. Humanly speaking, these last 48 hours which were about to enter Jesus' life before he faces the cross are a dark time. The rejection of the religious leaders of their saviour, their viewing of him as a threat to their power, the betrayal of Judas, these are dark things. But God is going to use the cowardice of the chief priests and the scribes and the betrayal of Judas to achieve his purposes. In fact, he's going to use those things to save us. You may have heard uh, that phrase that it is always darkest just before the dawn. I always thought that it was a quote from uh, one of the Batman films or, or maybe from Winston Churchill or somebody like that. But in fact, its origin is from a 17th century theologian called Thomas Fuller. He recognised that it is often in the darkness, often in the seemingly hopeless situation, that God is most at work. And that is what is happening here. We'll be told a little bit earlier in Luke's Gospel that Jesus has set his face towards Jerusalem. 
He knows that he's going there to die. And yet he resolutely sets out there because he knows that by his death, all of us will have life. We knew a couple uh, growing up um, who had been missionaries in China uh, in the 1970s. It was an extremely uh, difficult time uh, to be a follower of Jesus there and to be a missionary. Uh, but they began to get a little bit of purchase. Uh, there was some people who were turning to Christ. There was a small uh, nascent uh, church growing and developing there. But during that decade, the communist government made a decision that they didn't want any foreign missionaries in the country. And so very quickly they were expelled. And it seemed hopeless. This baby church that they've been involved in was uh, left leaderless it seemed and, and without support so what happened did the church die out did it flounder no it grew it grew rapidly because they needed indigenous leaders to step up and they did and they were able to take the church forward and we've seen that time and time again even in china today where churches face intense persecution, the church is growing. God is capable of using difficulty and darkness to achieve his glory. And that's exactly what is happening here. As the religious leaders deny Jesus, as they fail to recognise him as saviour and as they condemn him to death, and as Jesus betrays Jesus for 30 pieces of silver, they're fulfilling scripture. They are enacting God's plan of redemption. Yes, they are sending Jesus to his death, but he isn't going to stay dead. Three days later, he will rise, ensuring forgiveness for our sins and guaranteeing us new life. God is able, only too able, to turn darkness into light, to redeem brokenness and pain, and to win glory for himself. That's exactly what was happening here. As it comes uh, to Passover time, the final perfect Passover lamb, not a blemish-free sheep, but a sinless saviour, Jesus, is gonna shed his blood so that we can be forgiven and set free. So what do we learn this morning from this uh, short passage in Luke? Well, firstly, we're warned Titles and positions of power don't guarantee truthfulness. So we need to be careful to test our leaders against scripture, both in the things that they say and in the way that they live. We warn too that even those who are close to Jesus don't always know Jesus and love him. Proximity isn't the same as love. And so we need to be watchful and sober, to watch our own hearts, for any competing loves that threaten to overtake Jesus in our lives. But thirdly and finally, we've learned that darkness doesn't, often, doesn't mean defeat. That God is capable of using the darkest time, even wickedness and evil, to create glory and redemption for himself. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word to us this morning. Lord, and we ask that you would help us to take its warnings to heart. 
Lord, help us to test our leaders against your word and to follow those who are following you. Lord, we ask as well that you'd send your spirit into our hearts. Lord, help us to know ourselves truly. Lord, help us to catch ourselves where we're tempted to look away from you and to wander. Lord, bring us like lost sheep back into your fold. Help us to abide in you and to day by day take strength from you. And Lord, help us not to be hopeless. But Lord, in whatever circumstances we find ourselves, Lord, even in the darkness, to know that we are not without hope when we trust in you. In Jesus' name we ask these things. Amen.